Welcome to The Promised Land. I'm your host, Antonio Saunders. In our first episode of our series, God is Republican, we meet Brandon, a young, aspiring church leader who actually meets God on his own Damascus Road. As he converts from the conservative tenets of the evangelical faith into the more progressive tenets of what parishioners need in his current congregation. The man Brandon is today is not the man he thought or set out to be 10 years ago. You see a young boy from Elkridge, Maryland who joined the Christian ministry at only 13 years old. His worldview was influenced by a narrow evangelical theology. However, through journeys of life and religion, he finds himself and the true message of God. So in today's episode, we juxtapose the God he grew up with, with the one he knows today, to explore the notion of the Republican God, his followers, and their collective politics. To get into our conversation today, let's go back to a cold, rainy day in Chicago. Brandon is hurrying to do something that had become a norm at this point in his life, evangelizing, showing the loss, the true image of God that he held. When I was in Bible college in Chicago, um, every student every year is required to be a part of a program called Practical Christian Ministries, PCMs. And uh, they, the school would assign us to different churches and agencies across the city to go out and do Christian ministry, which could look like tutoring children, but it could also look like evangelizing, hardcore, um, sharing the gospel, telling people um, about their sinfulness. And on one of my PCMs over the course of my four years, um, we ended up, me and two other young white evangelicals in our suits and ties with our big Bibles, head to the south side of Chicago and we walk into Trinity United Church of Christ, which we had not any clue of what the history of this church was. We had no clue um, who Reverend Jeremiah Wright was, at least I, I know I didn't. And as we entered into that church, one of the first things you see is this giant mural of a black Jesus. That mural in this church represented black freedom, black liberation, and of course, black Jesus. And for Brandon, that was blasphemy. You could never guess which church this was, but Brandon was sitting on the pews of Trinity United Christian Church. Yep, that one. The one that Barack Obama attended. The one we learned about during his historic presidential run. Trinity United Christian Church is predominantly black with nearly 9,000 members and at the time was led by Reverend Jeremiah Wright. They actively fight against a right-wing, right-washed, blonde hair and blue-eyed depiction of Jesus. The church's early history moves in line with the civil rights movement. During the tumultuous period after Dr. King's assassination, the leaders of Trinity sought to recontextualize Christianity through black theology and empowerment. Its parishioners learned not only to live righteous lives, but to fight for justice as the scriptures had taught them. But at the time, Brandon doesn't know any of this. For us three white Bible college students who we're pretty accustomed to our entire lives of conceiving of Jesus as white. Um, I remember just feeling shocked, probably a little offended, honestly. Um, and I think that was probably, again, my own latent white supremacy that my faith has kind of built into me. But as I not only wrestled with that image, but began to hear and experience the culture of 
Trinity UCC, and then later on learning and listening to what Dr. Jeremiah Wright preached, which was a, a gospel of one radical inclusion and liberation, but also a gospel that was less centered on theology and more centered on the social teachings of Jesus. Um, I began, that was one of many turning points that began to make me start taking a hammer to my whitewashed, patriarchally driven evangelical faith. I wondered about Brandon Schock sitting in the pews, seeing a black Jesus beaming down on his white soul, seeing this mural of Jesus personified in his blackness as a deity to our people was a stark contrast to the images that were mass produced and illegitimately represented who Jesus was and perhaps is today. Brandon is now having to contend with white Jesus and now black Jesus. I wonder what the conversation on the ride home with himself and his peers was like after he left Reverend Wright's church. What would they have to reconcile for themselves and their faith? The thing for us was um, any white conservative evangelical environment sees liberation theology, which is um, primarily a theology that emerges from communities of color, uh, that see the message of Jesus about social, it being primarily about social liberation. Um, we were taught and conditioned to believe that that theology was a dilution of the gospel. It was a false gospel. But on the ride home, there is definitely this sense of probably, again, latent white supremacy being shocked by experiencing Jesus in a church as a Black man, but also this understanding that their whole theology, you can see it in the building of Trinity United Church of Christ. You can see it in every aspect of their ministry if you just enter into their campus. That they're centered on a different kind of Christianity. I would say a different Jesus, a different gospel. Today, I would say it's the true Jesus, the true gospel. Um, but I was looking and wondering and perplexed how this group of people could have arrived at any set of beliefs or conclusions that would say Jesus was more concerned about their civil rights as people of color or more concerned about their uh, equality in our country than he was about whether they believed the right theology. Um, and again, that was a tension for me in Bible college. That's a tension that I still think exists even as we watch conservative evangelicals today. Brandon leads a different kind of church in San Diego, one that is diverse and inclusive of people from all walks of life, including the LGBTQ community. When we take a deeper look at Brandon's journey, it's not just progressive, but a radical concept to have members of the LGBTQ community as a part of its congregation, but also positioned in its programming. Brandon represents a congregation that works around what the community needs and delivers on the faith tenets that no longer exclude our queer brothers and sisters from ministry. I think my journey reflects the journey of so many um, millennials that come from kind of that conservative white evangelical world. Um, because I started off at 12 years old in the fundamentalist Baptist church. I started going to church with my neighbors and I kind of, I had a radical conversion experience. Um, I, I encountered a loving God, even in the midst of fundamentalism. And I began to learn about Christianity in the context of far-right conservative evangelicalism. And that shaped my early worldview in regards to religion, but it also shaped my 
political and social worldview very early on. So I used to be the radical young 16 year old kid who would go out every Thursday night with my youth group and preach on the streets of Baltimore, Maryland about homosexuality and abortion and trying to convince people to uh, fight against these things that we saw as so opposed to the, the will of God. And then naturally, as often happens, I went off to college, but I went off to a fundamentalist Bible college in Chicago. And even though it was a fundamentalist Bible college, like so many young people experience in college, my worldview and my faith really began to deconstruct simply because I always say that my school that I went to had a really bad uh, plan. If, if their goal was to really train and indoctrinate a generation of people to preach their message, they shouldn't put their school in the heart of one of America's most diverse and big cities, Chicago, because I would hear fundamentalist teaching that I knew and I believed in and I loved. And then I'd walk out the door of our campus and I'd be right in the midst of the hustle and bustle of Chicago. And the theology and the politics and the worldview that I had been taught were biblical, had been taught were what God desired, didn't match up with the reality that I was experiencing in the real world. And that puts your faith into a tailspin because when your theology and reality start becoming incongruent, um, you really have to either question whether your theology is wrong or whether reality is wrong. And I began to start rethinking my theology um, and it ended up taking me down a, a long journey of personal discovery and a rediscovery of what Christian faith could look like. I wanted to know more about how Brandon aligned his faith to a theology that said the world was wrong. How did he approach people that didn't walk on his path? It was important to understand and unpackage what those teachings were, but also to see how they translate into understanding what God cares about and who God cares about. Well, I think it begins with um, any conservative evangelical theology, and I would, I would go as far to say any and all conservative evangelical theology, begins with the premise that the world is the enemy of God, uh, that because of sin, because we sinned in the Garden of Eden, we've all been infected by sin, we have all become enemies of God. And only those who are saved, which are, which in the fundamentalist context means those who believe the right things, only those who are saved and believe the right things are the righteous ones who have the ability to save other people or to preach a message that leads other people to salvation. If that's your starting point, then you can already begin to see where the problems are going to emerge because you have one group of people believing that they are the right ones, they are the saved ones, they are the chosen ones, and they are opposed to the majority, the rest of the world. Um, anybody who doesn't agree or believe or practice their faith like this particular group is seen as sinful, is seen as reprobate, is seen as an abomination. Um, and so that was the worldview that I began my Christian faith journey with. And on one hand, it was really good for me, um, at least in an egoic, selfish way, because I believed, again, that I was chosen by God. I was on the right side of things. I was going to heaven when I died. And so I had nothing to worry about. And therefore, um, when you believe that God is on your side and that you are right, you begin to be more emboldened to speak up and to be offensive, frankly. 
Um, there's a lot of talk in conservative Christianity about the offense of the gospel. Um, there's a lot of talk in the New Testament about the world hating Christians. And fundamentalists interpret that as the message we preach is going to be so offensive to people, it's going to uh, call them out of their worldly perspective that the only response they could have to us is a response of hatred and prejudice and rejection. And so kind of fundamentalist Christianity thrives on being marginalized by the culture and being hated by the culture because of their own hateful rhetoric. Um, and that really, again, that worldview, it's so prevalent in conservative evangelicalism. And for me, it was what shaped my upbringing. I would go to school and tell my gay friends that I would interact with in choir class that they were abominations. And I would hand out gospel tracts to Mormons and Muslims that were my peers in my classes and tell them that their religions were false religions. And it was because I believed God was on my side and I had nothing to lose. Um, but again, that it's a really divisive posture to take, um, not only religiously, but when you're engaging in society and socially. And I think we see some of the fruits of that division in our culture today, how evangelicalism continues to promote this us versus them mindset. One thing that is a core tenet of the conservative evangelical space is their God endorses its followers' worldview and political views. Not only is God on their side, but they are right and everyone else is wrong. They are using their theology in ways that promote that God chooses some and condemns others, that God loves some and God ignores others. This is a striking contrast to the ministry of Jesus, which was one of deliverance and getting into what my grandmother would call going into the highways and byways of religious practice, which meant going to the sick and shut-in, going to the people that needed miracles. Jesus broke religious tradition by going to anyone who was feeling ostracized by the church and bringing them into the kingdom by way of power and most importantly, love. Brandon's church at the time was much more on the spectrum of bringing judgment and condemning people. In understanding this is what Brandon knew and held sacred at the time, I wanted to know more about that time in Chicago and how his evangelical work began to change with the environment he was in. I look back on this time period as one of the most painful and also one of the best time periods of my life because I entered into Bible college um, again, really hardcore into fundamentalism. I was kind of up and coming in my little evangelical world that I lived and had functioned in in high school and middle school. And so I went off to Bible college feeling confident that I would get my degree, become a pastor and go off and be a conservative Christian somewhere at a church somewhere in the country. But within the first few weeks of being in Bible college, I began having those experiences that I described earlier of just asking how can, for instance, the Catholic Church, which my Bible college taught was the great whore of Babylon, they were evil, it was a false version of Christianity, but I walked down the street to Holy Name Cathedral in Chicago, which is a couple blocks away, and I sat in a mass, and I experienced profound beauty and serenity and peace. At some point, we all question our faith, especially when we reach our formative adult years. Some of us are in college, some of us are embarking on life alone for the first time, and many of us are encountering real things in the transition from the faith that our parents handed us to a test of faith. 
there is a point where you say to yourself, am I looking at this the right way? Is this really true for me? There is so much that shapes who we are and how we interpret the world. This is sort of where Brandon is in his faith. Up until that point for Brandon and his life in the evangelical church, he had developed a conservative view of the world that not only looked down, but condemned those who saw outside of his view. I was wondering, how could my theology, which says all of this is evil, and yet my experience here, which says this is good and right, how do I reconcile that? And then that began to happen when I would go down to Devon Street in Chicago, which is kind of this diverse ethnic neighborhood. And there's a Pakistani corner and uh, I would interact with Muslims um, while eating lunch at a lunch counter with taxi drivers. And we begin having conversation and they would leave to go pray. And I would experience in them a sense of joy and a sense of peace and a sense of, again, like a righteousness and a goodness that I was told couldn't exist in Muslim people because they were worshiping a false god. As Brandon stepped out into the world, he was learning the truth of what the world is, its many faces and its many ideas, practices, and lives within righteousness. And it opened his eyes to the world moving in peaceful unison. Brandon's experience in diversity was opening his eyes to the truth and peace of balance. As our conversation continues, Brandon reveals his struggle with his sexuality and how that affected his spiritual journey. And then again, it happened. Um, I began asking questions about my own sexuality and I had known for a while that I had struggled. I would have said back then, I struggled with same-sex attraction. And so as I began to engage in my own struggle and try to figure out what it looks like to live faithfully as a Christian who has these so-called struggles, uh, I began to realize that the way that the church was reacting to me and to people like me uh, who struggled with our sexuality, their reaction of hatred, their reaction of fear, they would condemn gay people, they would push away and say we couldn't work in children ministry because of course all gay people were pedophiles in a lot of conservative paradigms. I began to realize that even though I didn't know what I believed about my own sexuality, even though I didn't know what I was going to believe about my faith, that the fear and the judgment that I was experiencing in my tradition, in my Bible college, was so antithetical to the way of Jesus. The New Testament tells us that God is love and perfect love casts out all fear. And I just kept resonating with that verse and I kept reading that verse and praying that verse and wondering how my Bible college, how my entire faith upbringing was so rooted in being afraid, afraid of God's judgment, afraid of being wrong, afraid of people who are against us. Uh, how could that be of God if God is love and love casts out all fear? And so I just began doing my own exploration. I began interviewing um, kind of well-known heretics from the evangelical world, people who had stepped away from traditional evangelicalism and were trying to discover a more open and inclusive faith. I began reading, um, began attending a church that included LGBT people and had women preachers. And the more I leaned in that direction, the more I experienced a new kind of Christianity that was centered on love and not fear, inclusion, not judgment and exclusion. And that seemed to me to reflect the way of Jesus just so much more profoundly 
Um, and so that's the direction I started wandering in. And uh, a couple years later, about five years later, I ended up becoming a pastor of a progressive, inclusive Christian church. The journey to get to this had to be rocky for Brandon. So often he had been taught to point the finger at communities of color, the Mormon church, the Catholic church, and now that hatred had begun to be pointed at him. I wondered how the outward projection of shame felt now that it was directed back at him. I realized that not only was this pain and this rejection that I was experiencing excruciating and it felt so far from God or so far from anything Christ would do, but that I had been a part of a tradition and I had very actively been spewing the same kind of rejection and fear-based religion at hundreds of people over the past decade of my faith journey. Um, and it was a real moment of depression for me in that sense of the realization that the good news, the gospel that I was preaching wasn't good news for anyone. And maybe I had done a lot of harm to a lot of people with this message of fear-based exclusion. Brendan has walked us through his upbringing and the moments in which he questioned everything that he had once been taught. We've heard the beginnings of a great transition from someone he had always been to someone now he had always envisioned himself to be. He was, until this point in the story, a conservative evangelical that pointed the finger and looked down at everyone else, condemning those that did not follow his image of God and preached of a God who gave wrath to those that did not strictly adhere. His change began with him stepping out into a new world that had only been told to him, and he was now experiencing it. And in experiencing it, it was opening him up to his true self. I came to understand that empathy was the key to Brandon's journey, the key to his understanding of what exactly the world was and what his role in it was to be. And now he has to reconcile his sexuality with his religion. He was experiencing firsthand what it felt like to be on the receiving end of the shame and rejection put upon those who lived as he desired. The pain he felt, he had put on others, and now it is being turned on him. Brendan had reached a turning point in his relationship with God, redefining who God was and who God could be to his people. Could God really love all of us? As our discussion moves forward, I wanted to explore with Brandon who is the God he had known his whole life? What are his politics? And what did he think of the people in the world? I remember uh, the night Barack Obama got elected um, very vividly because I had, we had been convinced, I had been convinced by my church and everyone that I listened to that the Republican Party was the party that upheld the will and the way of God. Um, at that time, John McCain represented the, the Christian ideal candidate for president. And I sat in my bedroom watching TV and weeping as Barack Obama gave his acceptance speech and John McCain gave his concession speech, really praying to God. I mean, earnestly praying that God would save our nation from being given over to this agenda of the Antichrist. Um, I don't think I would have called him Barack Obama himself the Antichrist at that time, but it was definitely an agenda of evil. Um, any democratic or liberal progressive idea, I just didn't even think about it. We just label it evil and put it to the side. 
Um, and for the majority of my faith after that, I spent a lot of time, um, a lot of energy preaching on the streets against the Democratic Party, the platform, the ideals of it. Again, because I was told they were squarely contradictory with the way of Jesus. Um, and then when my faith did begin to change, um, my politics were the first thing that actually changed um, because I was more concerned with how my Christian faith was being embodied in public. How was it actually impacting real people? And those are social and political matters. Um, I wasn't quite as concerned about was my theology right or wrong because abstract beliefs about God didn't seem to me to have a ton of impact on Cabrini Green, which was the Chicago neighborhood that was right next to our campus that was basically a project that was put up and there was poverty and oppression very visible there and I began to wonder how could our Bible college be situated here with so much wealth and so much privilege and completely ignore the pain the suffering the oppression the injustice happening right across our street and I began to think like that and see those incongruities with my faith and with the social reality in front of me my politics began to change and I think they began to conform to what I would say is a more Jesus-centered approach, more centered on the red letter principles of Jesus in the Gospels. Let's deepen our perspective of the conservative God. Many of the religious ideologies that evangelicals hold today have been emboldened under Donald Trump. On the front lines of his movement stand millions of evangelicals followers who not only believe in God, but believe that God ordained Donald Trump to be president. So who is the Republican God? What does he stand for? I think the Republican God has actually evolved or de-evolved in a tremendously scary way over the past particularly four to eight years. Um, on that first night when Barack Obama won the election, I was a young fundamentalist. I think the conservative evangelical Republican base was really focused on believing in and uh, serving a God who was more concerned about conserving that which was rather than progressing and improving and creating a new reality. Um, and I think that's the consistent tension we see between what we could call the democratic God and the conservative God. People of faith in both parties either tend to rely on an understanding of God that says, Things used to be really good and we need to get back to the place where Christian values were at the heart of our country, where patriarchy was strong and where women obeyed their husbands and worked in the house and the men went out and did the real work. And so we tell the, the conservative God tells the story of America when it was first founded as this nation of religious freedom, this nation that obeyed the Bible um, and any politician any religious leader that is calling us away from that foundation is calling us away from God. Um, and that was, I think, what the conservative Republican God in America looked like for a couple of decades. I found this disturbing. I thought of the discrepancies between how easily one church with a black congregation can call for Donald Trump's impeachment and condemn his acts of racism and disregard him as president, while another conservative base romanticizes this primitive and white supremacist theology. 
in my research for this conversation, I came across the American Values Survey, which is a survey of how Americans feel about the society they live in today, specifically in how our country and lives have changed since the 1950s. No group had a dimmer view of American culture than white evangelicals. Nearly three quarters, 74% y'all, say American culture has changed for the worse since the 1950s. This baffled me because we all know what happened during this era. But what I believe the survey truly reveals is that God had a social order ordained and we've lost our way from it. Today, that God has definitely changed because um, with Donald Trump, we have seen this moment of the evangelical world, by and large, giving up their moral grounds, any moral ground they might've had. And their God has become one that's not interested in personal morality, but only um, preserving Christian dominance, Christian privilege, Christian superiority. There's been a real shift towards what I would call Christianizing culture. And so they don't care whether Donald Trump is a moral man or whether Donald Trump mirrors Jesus at all. They continually say he's not our pastor in chief, he's our president, commander in chief. Um, and they're more interested in maintaining this Christian dominance over culture. And they believe as long as they have power, as long as they have a friend in the White House, they will be able to legislate the gospel, legislate their beliefs into existence. Um, and again, anyone who comes with a more progressive message calling for change, calling for a new perspective, calling for new policies that might give more equality to more people, there's resistance because they already feel like the conservative base feels like they're losing ground. They lost a lot of ground with Barack Obama's agenda as he chipped away at the moral foundations of this country. And anybody who comes talking about change, anyone who comes talking about progress is just seen as somebody who's going to continue to chip away at the biblical moral foundation, um, which again is a 4,000 year old foundation. They want to keep a society that reflects the society of scripture, which is not only absurd, it's really disturbing if you think about what it looks like to recreate the ancient Hebrew society or even the society of Jesus in America today. And yet I think that's what a lot of conservative Republican Christians are advocating for and dream of. This resistance to give equality to all people has manifested in many forms in recent times. We've seen it in Muslim bans, in repealing healthcare reform, in challenges to women's rights to own their own damn bodies. The Republican God is facing a dilemma of how to deal with a progressive society that seeks to see and serve all. There's this feeling of losing ground, of losing a society that once was in this country, a righteous Christian one. I wanted to discuss with Brandon the political policies in our country and think about how the Republican God would vote on these same issues. What are God's politics? How are people using this theology to support how people vote on the issues we face? Right. Well, I think, again, we're in a, a scary moment as a progressive person now um, of for instance, today, as we're recording this, um, Donald Trump has appointed a, a new Supreme Court justice who very well might overturn Roe versus Wade, or at least begin rolling the ball in that direction. And so 
that would be a victory for evangelical white Republicans because again, at the core of conservative theology, all conservative theology, even though I don't think many conservatives are consciously aware of this, is this strong devotion and dedication to patriarchy. And I understand patriarchy as not just the oppression of women, but it's the oppression of women, it's the oppression of people of color and the oppression of what could be called sexual or gender deviance in their um, paradigm. Any person that doesn't live into their gender identity or sexuality in the way that they believe God intends them to. And the whole abortion argument is so interesting because 50 years ago, it's, it was actually conservative evangelicals that were pro-choice and were actually advocating on the cover of Christianity Today, which is the flagship magazine of evangelicalism for pro-choice um, arguments for women. In the moments after that era of American history where the conservative grip evangelical grip on our country began to be lost, they began to kind of regroup around this patriarchal ideology. And so the whole abortion question, for instance, all comes down to the woman doesn't have a right over her body. The body is God's body. The body is her husband's body. And if there's impregnation that happens, that's what sex is for. And therefore, that life that has been created is legitimate. God must have ordained it if it happened. And to do anything to allow that woman to make a choice to abort that pregnancy, that is seen as a fundamental violation of the ordering of creation. That's seen as a grave sin. Um, and as you know, the conservative evangelical church would not shy away from saying it's murder. Um, but I think, again, while there are a lot of people that sincerely believe that and could lean on scriptures like the ones in the Psalms that say, God knit you together in your mother's womb. Under the surface of that theological argument is the deeper argument about whether women have a right over their body, whether women are able to make decisions, um, good decisions about sexuality and their body and the role of the man in making that decision. Um, and again, in this moment of American history, the evangelical movement has a real persecution complex. So they see any pushback against these arguments and against their beliefs as religious persecution, when really all that they're experiencing right now is um, the leveling of the playing field, their privilege being drained from them. Um, but they're not able to see that. In the, to use Jesus's words, let them who have eyes see and let them who have ears hear. Um, they don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear the new leveling of the field that's taking place in this moment. I wondered, what does God think about the people in the pulpit? We're not just debating pro-life or pro-choice, but the Republican God has very strong opinions about black and brown people in the world as well. When considering that Brandon was at Bible College in Chicago after Barack Obama had been elected, he could have been feeding the homeless or raising money or even looking at critical issues of today and saying, here are the discrepancies in society and here are the people that are marginalized. But instead, Brandon and many who followed the conservative value system held onto their privilege instead of evolving their viewpoints. This is one of the most perplexing questions um, because no conservative, no evangelical, of course, is going to say that they are white supremacist or racist. 
Um, and yet two experiences in my life have really told me what the conservative Republican God believes about race. The first one was I was sitting with one of the pastors of the largest churches in the country um, just a few years ago when we were having lunch. And he has a church in a major metro area that is heavily African-American, but his church is thousands and thousands of people that are all white. And I just brought up the question, um, why, why aren't you intentionally trying to engage racism and talk about racial, racial diversity in your congregation? And his response to me was, our goal isn't to reach black people. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we're about. And on one hand, he thought that was a very wise uh, marketing strategy. He's a white pastor. They have white, traditional white music, that kind of stuff. So of course they were gonna do what makes most sense for them. But on the other hand, the radical blindness to being this church that had kind of parachuted into an African-American area of the country and completely excluded, had no interactions with, didn't care about the issues facing the community that they existed in. That was a glaring sign for me of racism and ignorance and just a willingness and unwillingness to even begin thinking or engaging at all with how Christian privilege, white privilege, evangelical privilege impacts the communities and the cultures that these churches and schools exist in. And then the other one is something that's happened to me in the past week. Our church here in San Diego put up a billboard in, our, in the gay neighborhood here that just says radically inclusive, God takes pride in you and so do we. And part of that message and part of the messaging we put out around that was about intersectional justice, which in the way we talk about it simply means that all injustice is tied together and that people exist in these vortexes of multiple streams of oppression and that we can't just fight one form of oppression, we need to fight all the forms of oppression if anyone's going to experience liberation. And all of a sudden white conservative evangelical Twitter and some white evangelical conservative news outlets, Charisma News and the Christian Post started attacking me in our church because of this use of this language of intersectionality and this idea that racial justice was fundamentally tied to LGBT justice and to trans rights and to poverty issues and to healthcare. And there was a strong pushback against, no, those, those things can't be tied together. We can't think about justice that way. Intersectionality is a fundamentally unchristian value. Um, these were the things that were literally being said to me. And it showed me that the white conservative evangelical God is one that's really afraid and doesn't know how to stand in a moment where, again, the mountains are being laid low and the valleys are being lifted in this moment where white supremacy, European supremacy is being named and clearly a spotlight shone on it and we're being called to chip away and dismantle it. The only thing the white conservative God knows how to do is to cling onto it tightly and to fight against anything that would chip away that privilege and that position of power. Um, and again, I think not only in churches do you see this, but just look at Congress, just look at the White House. It's this newfound tolerance that conservatives have embraced in this era where Donald Trump says, there are good people on both sides of the Charlottesville riots, that there are good white supremacists and good people of color that are protesting them. It's this newfound sense of how do we validate 
our own whiteness and our own positions of privilege? How do we reshape our narrative and our theology to protect that? Um, and one, I don't think the Christian tradition, the biblical tradition is very helpful. Um, I think Jesus launches a full-scale attack on privilege and power. But it's also really terrifying to see the ways that churches and politicians are together innovating new theologies and new perspectives that, again, bolster and validate and protect white supremacy, white privilege at the expense of working for the justice of people of color, of all the other minority groups that might be in their area, in their ministry field. Um, they're more engaged about preserving their own power than about actually working for equality and justice. We've long known that there are two different gods just by the segregation that happens on Sunday morning. We know that if you walk into a white congregation, you expect the white tradition of silence when it comes to racial social issues. We see that the Republican God not only endorses the silence, but has shown in the instance of Brandon's unnamed preacher, God is not here to reach black and brown people. God is actually here to bypass them to get to the chosen people who look like the congregation of this white pastor. With such a narrow view of the gospel, how did you even begin to think about the expansiveness of Jesus? His skin of bronze, his hair like wool, eyes like fire, a man ousted from the church based off his radical love for people. Reconcile that with what we have today in the depictions of Jesus, who is a white man with blue eyes. Why is it even that prominent preachers like Paula White and Rob Parsley who have aspects of the black church in their delivery, worship, and style of preaching have not called out white supremacy and the hatred in their own white conservative base. And we now have a missing piece in the faith tenet of the conservative evangelicals. We now know why it is not denounced nor voices given to any of the incidents in this country surrounding black and brown people. We now understand that the Republican God ordains that white people ignore the blatant experiences of people who do not look like them. Yeah, I think three things popped up as you were asking that question. I think one, talking about the white Pentecostal movement, the Rod Parsley's, the Paula Whites, I think um, they display such an insidious form of white supremacy that our culture at large has just accepted as okay because what they have done, um, I'll be bold enough to say that for power, for wealth, for fame, black culture, like you were saying, they've hijacked uh, black language, black music, black church style, and have repurposed it so that they could build great television audiences. And it's just this very overt form of colonization, of stealing culture, and repurposing it for their own financial gain. And I think even today, that's not a conversation that a lot of people are having um, on the left or the right about how the Pentecostal movement in America, the white Pentecostal movement, has just really become this force of uh, hijacking and colonizing the culture of various groups of people of color for their own financial benefit. Um, so I think there's something to be explored there. Um, but I also think that most of the white evangelicals, uh, their privilege affords them the privilege of not needing to think about race. 
the reason that pastor who has that church in a large African-American area doesn't have to worry about reaching the people in his own community is because not only has his own white privilege given him a church of 40, 50,000 people, it's given him financial wealth and gain. It's given him separation from any sense of the violence and the injustice that might be happening in the community right around him. He doesn't need to think about that because he's so shielded from it by all of the gifts that come from his privilege. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing such a, I would say vitriolic response from the right in this day, because there is something happening in our culture where some white evangelicals and some other white folks are waking up to their own white supremacy, along with the people of color and the women and the LGBT people that are marching in the streets. And that we're beginning to shine a light together on their blatant white supremacy. And that, for the first time, I think is beginning to penetrate the layers of um, cushioning around their worldview. And that's causing them to be really afraid because they see, yes, I've been somebody who's been perpetuating injustice and that the theology and the worldview that I've been advocating for actually is incongruent with the way of Jesus. But my career is based on this. My life is based on this. Why would I give this up? And I think we're in a real moral moment for white evangelicalism to say, you have a choice. Just like uh, the book of Joshua says, I have set before you life and death. You have to choose. Are you going to choose to follow the path of justice, which might mean that you lose 20,000 people from your church or you lose your book deals and TV shows because you actually spend your money and resources beginning to engage the social issues that are actually impacting communities around you? Or are you just going to cling tightly and conserve your own privilege and your own power and your own false version of Christianity that looks nothing like Jesus because it's comfortable, because it helps you live a high style of life. Um, I think that's the moral moment that the Republican Party and that white evangelicals are going to be facing now and in the months and years ahead. I think the distinction between the God of the Democrats and the God of the Republicans is becoming clearer. We've now heard the voice of the Republican God and how he is shaping politics through the worldview of evangelicals. What's striking about this discussion is the dissonance that occurs in the evangelical church. From theology, we move from a deity that sees all through redemption to a Republican God that upholds a doctrine of chosen and unchosen groups based on the preservation of conservative tactics, views, and skin tone. This God can exclude his own. This God is foreign to me. I've never sat in the pulpit to seek atonement from this God, but to many of those that I may have gone to school with or perhaps work with, they cherish this version of their God. We are now in the throes of hearing the voices of two gods send conflicting messages about the direction of our country and the longevity of our people. So how does this happen? How do we have two different interpretations of humanity, social issues, and progress? And what danger does that present to our society? Because this is sort of the crux of the show, is that we have one deity who actually is sending two different messages to his body. I think we're always going to see 
God through a different lens. I think any community or culture is always going to see God differently. What is so drastically um, surprising and disturbing about this conversation in America, in Christianity, is that we are using the same text. We are using the same tradition. We are using the same biblical characters and ideas. And you're right, we come to two radically different conclusions of what this faith looks like. And it makes me think that salvation then becomes two contrasting ways of redemption to get and reconcile yourself to God. One in the Republican faith is about God died for me to actually remain the chosen. Um, that yes, I have some sin, but for the most part, I will remain in right standing with God primarily because of my position in society. God did it this way, it being my economic status, me being number one to be able to rule, that me giving, being given the advantage in, in, in society is the way that God set this thing up, and I should not apologize for that. Whereas salvation and redemption in the way that I experienced it initially was actually God actually saying, I could finally be equal. I could uh, finally actually live out my existence in this black skin and as a gay man in America, as God actually redeeming me to be sort of equal to that, but I would actually have to, to, to work for that. So salvation in the black church was being free to actually liberate myself from oppression and injustice. I think you nailed it on the head with the talk about salvation. The Republican God's salvation is giving the gift of eternal privilege. You're saved, you're chosen, and you become guaranteed to have mansions in heaven when you die versus the God of all of those who've been oppressed, whether that's queer people or people of color or indigenous folks or whatever. Um, their version of salvation is always liberation in this life. How do I begin to taste justice now? Um, and maybe there's a focus on one day in the by and by, there will be true and pure justice, but the focus is completely different. Um, and I, I just thought that was a beautiful point you highlighted. I always wondered how some could disregard and treat people any kind of way with no level of contrition. Well, now I know why. We now see the emergence of two paths to salvation, one red, one blue. We now can secure our paths through the pearly gates based off the God that we created who happens to uphold our political views. Brendan talks about how he diverted from one of those paths to the other. We now meet Brandon on what some could call the Damascus Road, where we get to meet Jesus again, and this time he removes the veil from our eyes, introducing us to a new theology that changes us. I got born again again when I was... Um had left Bible college, graduated, moved back to Washington, D.C., wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life um, because I knew that I was gay. I knew that my theology and worldview was being radically shifted. I knew that I couldn't be a part of conservative evangelicalism anymore. Um, and as you said, I was had a book deal with a conservative Pentecostal publisher, and I had started writing pretty publicly about um, 
my support of civil marriage equality. Um, I actually was given a job as the national spokesperson of Evangelicals for Marriage Equality, which was this new organization that was just trying to advocate for civil gay marriage. We were asking churches to say gay people had a civil right to be married, even if they didn't have the right to be married in our churches. Um, simply because I took that position publicly, my Pentecostal publisher sent me an email after I turned in my manuscript and said, we really love the book, but because of your position on equality, um, the Christian Bookselling Association, the CBA, who kind of um, distributes books to all of the major Christian retailers, has blacklisted your name and said they won't sell your book because you're a false teacher. Um, and they asked me to sign a statement that denounced homosexuality as an abomination or I would have my book deal taken away from me. And at that point in my life, um, I just started kind of personally coming out and I knew I couldn't authentically sign that statement. And so I lost that deal. It kind of it became a, a story. And I experienced um, a lot of pushback from, again, the highest levels of the white evangelical world who read the news story about me losing this book deal and applauded this publisher for their ability to stand up to false teachers promoting evil theology and evil principles like equality and justice. Um, so again, that fear-based religion, I began to see it again for what it was. At that same time, um, I came out of the closet and I entered into the LGBT community. And I began again to see God so profoundly in the midst of my LGBT siblings who were arguably some of the most rejected people by the modern evangelical church, who are some of the most rightfully pissed off people. Um, they have a reason to be angry at evangelicalism. And yet they embraced me as a gay Christian. Um, I saw community of solidarity. I saw communities that stood with each other in the highs and the lows. I, I saw so much beauty emerging out of this marginalized group of people that I now was identifying with. What was Brandon seeing now that he couldn't see before in this community and in God's word? So I started attending communities that were committed to intersectionality and justice, communities that were centered on Jesus, Jesus's teachings, instead of the teachings of Paul or instead of the Old Testament, they read the Bible, all of the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And they understood Jesus as the radical, subversive rabbi that he was, who challenged religious tradition, who amended scripture, who canceled out portions of scripture that were unjust or called for injustice, uh, who stood up to the political and religious authorities in his day on behalf of those that the religious and political authorities had called unclean and marginalized. And as I continued to read that in scripture and find that in communities of faith in DC, it was a rediscovery of who God is. It was finding God in the face of the stranger, the enemy, the oppressed, finding God in all of the places God wasn't supposed to be. And if you actually read the gospels of Jesus, the stories of Jesus's life and ministry, that's consistently his experience. He finds God, he finds beauty, he finds redemption everywhere where it shouldn't be by religious standards. Um, and for me, that became such a life-giving faith. It brought healing to me as somebody who had experienced now marginalization for my sexuality but it also opened my eyes to the ways in which so many other groups 
of people were experiencing marginalization at the hands of those who claimed to be Christians and ignited a fire in me that, again, has led me to where I am today, preaching and leading an intersectional, inclusive uh, Christian church that is committed not to being the most orthodox or upholding the most orthodox theology, but to following Jesus practically to say, what did Jesus actually do? And how can we implement that in our society for the good of those who need it the most for the oppressed and the marginalized? Brandon's theology has shifted and so has his church today. I wanted to know how does he actually serve a community in a fully inclusive way to a congregation that spans different sexual orientations? How does he move away from the traditional version of ministry of having marriage groups and single groups to a more evolved radical concept where everyone can walk under the banner of Christ? How is it that it is practiced in his ministry? Yeah, well, it's amazing. It really is amazing um, when you begin to preach a message of radical inclusion, when you begin to preach a message that says America has to repent of our sins of colonialism and Christians have to take account of the ways that we've perpetuated an oppression of people of color and of women and of LGBT people. When you begin to preach the radical message of Jesus, the people that show up are remarkably diverse. Um, we don't go out, I've never gone out into our community and sought out uh, gay people to come to church or people of color to come to church. But our last Sunday, uh, two days ago, we had 150 people show up at our church and I looked out and literally began to weep at just this ragtag community of pe people that don't belong together because every culture, every race, every sexuality, every age, you just see represented because people are compelled by this message of Christ's radical love and call for this inequality and the leveling of the playing field for all people. And the only group of people that aren't really compelled by that generally are those who are privileged and powerful. And so the actual demographic we lack the most of is straight white men in our community um, because it's too uncomfortable to be a part of that. Um, but what ministry looks like for us, um, as I've become the pastor here and we've kind of shaped this vision around leaning into Jesus and his radically inclusive justice, we've really begun to kind of use this catchphrase that we're a church that's against organized religion, but we are for using religion for organizing. And our primary ministry is at Mission Gathering. Sure, we have small groups. We really believe in social relationships. Those are helpful for those of us that are going through the highs and lows of life. But our, primarily, our primary ministry is our justice ministry. And every week, our church is going down to the border to protest and to stand up against ICE agents, or we're marching in the streets of San Diego about gun violence, or we're opening up a homeless shelter for LGBT youth that happens every Tuesday night. Um, we, our congregation, our resources don't go to where I think a lot of white youth go, which are the things like Bible study classes or curriculum. Um, our resources, by nature of who we are, it's not a point of valor for us, it's just a necessity. They go to tangible acts of justice and to speaking truth to power because that's what our people care about because the Jesus they've rediscovered, that's what he cares about. Um, 
And so it's just been really amazing because I haven't had to do a lot of work as a pastor to shape this. Guide people to the example of Jesus. And as cheesy as it might sound, people really become compelled by his actions, his example, and take to the streets to do actual justice and bring actual liberation. Proud to be a Christian and to be a pastor than I am being a pastor of this ridiculous and amazing congregation. In closing, I wanted Brandon to leave us with a prayer that sums up the intersection of his faith and political views that he stands on. I thought about how I express my own contrition towards God to actually use my life. As my grandmother would say, use me for your service, O God. For Brandon, I wanted to know when looking at his own faith journey, what prayer or verse inspired him to continually do the work to advance his faith. For me, uh, there's two pastors. I'll read one of them that I literally think of, at least uh, think about, pray through or read uh, multiple times a week. Because again, this version of Christian faith that's centered on liberation and justice, it is, it's always been the heartbeat of the Jewish tradition. It's always been the heartbeat of the Christian tradition. And it's just been so diluted. And for me, this passage comes from um, the book of Isaiah, which is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Um, and it's a passage where Isaiah is talking to the worshipers of God and saying, essentially, all of your religious actions, all of your singing of songs, all of your fasting, all of your using of ashes, that's not acceptable to me. That's not the worship I desire. And then God tells what kind of worship uh, he desires. And this is in Isaiah chapter 58. Um, and I'll read starting in verse five. Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself and bow his head like a reed and to spread out in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call that fast acceptable to the Lord? No. Isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every burden? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and bring food to the poor and the homeless? Bring those without a home into your house and to clothe the naked when you see them and not to ignore your own flesh and blood. Then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. At that time when you call on the Lord, when you cry out, he will say, here I am. And for me, that's just this beautiful, profound reminder that, again, I'm a person of faith. I'm a religious leader. Um, I think religion has some value. But my faith in following Jesus and being a Christian has almost nothing to do with the songs we sing or whether we're doing the liturgy correctly or any of that. It has everything to do with embodying this path of radical self-sacrificial love for the good of our others. And we're told that God responds to us. God will be delighted to respond to us when we worship through doing tangible acts of justice and liberation. Um, and that's been my experience as I've stepped into this new version of Christian faith. Um, I experience God more profoundly now in the faces of those who I get to speak for or alongside of or with, um, in the faces of those who get to have a voice given back to them that's been stolen. Um, and that has renewed my faith and changed my life. And that's the faith that I really pray and honestly hope will reignite 
in the heart of the Christian church, not only in America, but around the world, because our world depends on faith like that. I thank Brandon for using scripture to help us connect God to the version of faith that he had developed. Without a doubt, Brandon's faith has evolved from the conservative days of his upbringing to a faith that moves him to experience and live out the word of God in a way that is restorative and gives justice to all. As I spoke to Brandon about who he was and who he is today, I could hear in his voice as I spoke with him a peace and a shortness that can only come from confronting and analyzing his theology and challenging it within himself. Brandon had become a new man, a man with a new message. Thanks for listening to The Promised Land. I'm your host, Antonio Saunders.